welcome back to Killer Fun, where we explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. I'm Christy. And I'm Jackie. And we're so glad that you're back with us today. Today, I we're- am in the same room with you. I today, know, today. It's so exciting. For those of you who have not figured this out, and that sounds really condescending, and that's not what I meant, but for those of you who need this tip, <laughs> Framley. In this pandemic, pick a family who is safe, quarantine yourselves for two weeks if you have to before, and then join together and make that your bubble. Because that's what we've done, and now we can record together. That's right. And now we can get together for a meal. We can. And, I mean, it's great. It's like my parents who see, like, nobody. Nobody. (laughs) Just us and you guys. That's it. And it's been such a huge blessing for our kids, for us. I mean, it's just... I mean, the kids, my kids like us. Your kids like you. Yeah, and they're doing great, but I mean, it's still troublesome. It's still hardship, and they aren't realizing it now, but they will later, too. Right, and it's just after the first time that we got together, they were so, it's so nice to be around somebody our own age. Oh, and I'm like, I I feel the same way. Uh, (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I love you, children, but I'd like to be around someone my own age for a little while. (laughs) Please. So it's been great. So today, today, we are together. Today, today, we're together. And we're going to talk about A Serial Killer's Daughter by Carrie Rawson. She wrote a book. And it's just... I thought it was really well done. She is the daughter of Dennis Rader, who gave himself the moniker BTK, Bind, Torture, Kill. Because, ugh. 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 That's what he enjoyed, and it's gross. And he killed 10 people from 1974 to 1991, and then was captured, uh, apprehended in... 2005, February of 2005. So um, she wrote a book about her lived experience living with this man and what it was like, because the family did not know that he had these horrible proclivities. Never suspected him of having such a dark other life. Right. Uh, Yeah, it was challenging but the book is really really good it is really good and i'm so i'm gonna say this and it's gonna sound harsh and ugly and actually i mean it as a compliment um so i'm a bit of paradox today um but she doesn't write well okay (laughs) she writes very accessibly i think but it is accessible but i was thinking to myself initially i would get a little confused on timelines because of the way that she wrote mm. it was a little unclear and then at times it felt like because she was writing so matter of factly it didn't convey maybe the severity of the situation or convey her emotions well it just and i was thinking she's sort of a not a talented writer but then mm. i was thinking that is the best thing ever i'm a, it's actually a compliment because for her to be able to tell this story i needed to just be her telling a story about her life i really just wanted to hear her thoughts like as if i was listening to someone and that was more important than her writing well um because i think if she was a more talented writer she wouldn't be as good of a storyteller. Ooh. 
That's an so, excellent observation. I'm saying that because I'm sure other people who read this or who've spoken to her probably have given her some of those kind of feedbacks about the way that she writes. And yet I think it's an absolute uh, wonderful thing. So mm-hmm. there's that. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was accessible. It felt very real and raw and honest. And, you know, something that probably was in hindsight feels like it was in short supply in Carrie's life. Right. You know, until I mean, her whole world the- after the fact fell apart. Uh, well, yeah. You know, retroactively, nothing Uh made sense. She was mad about everything in her past. Nothing was the same. So, yeah. Yeah. But her inner narrative that she has in here, um, I am totally in. I hear her voice in my head with her inner narrative and her little sarcasms here and there and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And that's what I love about it. It's fabulous. Well, and her ability to maintain some humor. I mean, really, like, that's resilience. It is resilience. Yeah. It is resilience. So it's a beautiful story. And, and you know, her, her caption is um, my story of faith, love, and overcoming. Mm-hmm. And so this is written from a more healed place, um, mm-hmm. not a place of super anger. So you do get a, a, a bit of a wisdom that's injected into it all, but yet she never lost the reality of her situation either. Right. That's maturity. Yeah, it really is. You had some other thoughts. Oh, yeah. I I feel bad. (laughs) I want to talk about her mom. I just, I feel like we didn't hear much about her mom. And at the end of the book, I super worried if she had a relationship with her mom or if that had fallen to the wayside or what anger she might still have towards her mom as if thinking maybe her mom should have known. Like she really didn't talk about the healing process that needed to happen between her and her mom. She, it was only about the unity that they had together. And so I was pretty curious mm. about that because I think she lost her dad, right? but she actually lost her mom too. And so I wondered if they came out of that and created a new relationship. Yeah. I think that they have, I haven't seen anything that suggested that she's estranged from her mother like on the social media where I follow her, she was real active around the time the book was released and shortly thereafter. And, you know, off and on she'll post stuff, but I kind of get the impression that she really feels like this is her family. Now it's not her dad's family anymore. He's not really a part of the family Mm. that this is her family. This is her mom, not Dennis Rader's wife. Okay. Or ex-wife. 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 We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, yeah, that's good. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad. I. She, it was almost so flowery, the way that she talked about her mom. That's why I wondered. Well, and I think her mom hasn't been very open to talking about her experience. I know she is in therapy um, or has, was in therapy at one time, as well as Carrie, not with her, but also went to a trauma therapist to help as her. As they do- should. Yeah, exactly. As they should. <laughs> no shame, no shade whatsoever. I'm very glad that they got a little bit of help. I saw an interview with Carrie and they had a picture of her and her mom and her dad and Carrie was an infant okay. being held by her mother and her mother's face is blurred out. Oh, so, so I she's really, really big on her privacy. She is. And I think that that, I think you don't hear more about her mom's story except where it's absolutely salient to Carrie's story 
because she's respecting that boundary that her mom has set up. She's telling her story without stepping on the toes of her mother. That's good. I'm really yeah. I'm comforted to hear that. It makes yeah. me think that maybe it makes me think that maybe instead of the estrangement that I might have picked up, instead there might be a protectionism. Yeah. Something of a she's caring for her mother a lot and being protective. So that's good. I'm yeah. glad. Yes. Woo! Yeah. Me too. <laughs> See, and I didn't read it that way at all. I didn't read it as a estrangement, just as a this is a boundary. I'm telling my story. She's only included as absolutely necessary. That's great. Well, is, I'm really glad. It helps yeah. that you've seen a little bit of the social media, and I do not follow Carrie Rawson, and I have not right. really followed the social media as right. much. And so, well, and you um, don't do Twitter really, and not that's where much. she's mostly active that I've seen. Yeah, I'm kind yeah. of a dork about that. <laughs> not good at Twitter. <laughs> I hate to say this, but it just sort of confuses me at times. And I don't know what it is about it. It gets better. And then it gets worse. Like, (laughs) the mechanics of it get better. And the actual content of it sometimes gets worse. That's true. But, um, you know, we're pretty drama free on our social media. So you can totally follow us. You should. On Twitter, we're at KillerFunPod. On Facebook, we're Killer Fun Podcast, exploring the intersection of crime and entertainment. Or you can send us an email, killerfunpodcast at gmail.com. And we post lots of links, all the sources that we use during the podcast. A lot of things that we don't get a chance to cover are also on there. So it's a good, interesting follow. So Yeah, you know. so follow us yeah. there. And, and you can be Do. rest assured that Christy is handling Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Not confused, Jackie. So... <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. And this is something you see a lot when you are seeing information about people who were in the quote unquote real life of a serial killer is that they didn't know, they didn't didn't suspect and that to anyone outside of the house, Dennis Rader seemed to cherish his wife, Paula, she says on page nine, which I'm like, Wow. Which is so hard because I, I think the word seemed to, I uh-huh. respect why she put that there, but I think he actually did. You think he actually did cherish her? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's, that's an interesting insight. <laughs> <laughs> it's also really dark and ugly, but I fully respect that of myself. And, and so, yeah, I, it was interesting to watch because this is Carrie's perspective what I see coming out of her is is sometimes this adherence to the horror of it by putting words like seem to. Because it is horrible to say that he killed and raped other people and cherished his wife. That is irreconcilable to most people and probably to her. But I think based on like listening to her conversations with her dad later on and things, I think she knows that that's the truth. But I think she was very kind to put the word seemed in there. That's probably not a very popular view. Oh, Oh, I just, I hadn't thought of it that way only because later he talks, we'll get to this. Yeah. He talks about how they were a social contract. Yeah, he did use those words later on. Yeah. So, can you cherish somebody that you're using? I think the second one was more of a intentional words. Oh. 
it's irreconcilable to think that. And if you're in a court, you know, confessing your crimes for the sake of sentencing, it would look like defensiveness. It would look like mitigation. Okay. Uh, if you were to advocate that you truly loved your family. I don't think a judge, lawyers, mm. people can't under, wouldn't understand that. They would think he's just trying to mitigate, trying to get you on his side, trying to stir up empathy points. Right. I think he needed to... Uh, play the narrative in court in oh. order to have uh, his sentencing appropriate for his amount of, well, I say confession, but acknowledgement, taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they would have seen him as taking responsibility if he had also tried to advocate that he actually loved his family. Mm. So I think they are social contracts in that narrative. But okay. I don't think you don't that... think that he didn't... That he lacked love for his family. Right. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But I get why. I mean, we watched Dexter. We know what it's like. But you know what? Dexter also loved Rita. He he did. Even if it started out as trying to look normal. (laughs) (laughs) He did love Rita. He did love his adopted sister. He did love his child. He He loved loved Rita's kids. This was why it was such an interesting story because it examined the idea that people without empathy and who are complete narcissists actually can love somebody else. And there is some currency in them that will motivate them to do for others. And that's a very difficult thing for people to reconcile. And, you know, how long did it take me to bring up Dexter? Just because (laughs) it doesn't take me long. We should start timing that and go, oh, (laughs) you beat your record today. (laughs) Uh, Carrie says very early on in the book that she felt safe and loved. And I don't doubt that, but there's also this theme of a really careful dance that the family had to do to avoid setting Dennis off. Like on page 20, she said he seemed like he wasn't himself. On page 40, she's talking about how his rage was swift and unpredictable. What eggshells to live on. And then they went um, to this Grand Canyon hike. I loved this whole story. I mean, it was... I loved and hated it. It was so telling and so interesting and seems like such a cool thing for him to want to do with his kids. And then his behavior is so weird, erratic and troublesome, but not, you wouldn't think he was a serial killer, just a jerk. Right. And that's, that's the thing about these. They're not red flags unless you're looking backwards. The Mm -hmm. other side of that flag doesn't indicate Serial killer. People are moody. Lots of people live with people who are moody. You never know which version's coming home. And and not necessarily violent or anything like that. Um, I mean, they even indicated in their narrative that they were all aware. Even Dennis was aware of his moods. That he was not unaware of how they treated him to help him get out of it. Right. That's, that's a lot of self-awareness for him being just a moody guy, you know what I mean? To recognize when mm-hmm. when his wife is like, go outside, I'll take care of it, I'll clean it up. He recognizes, oh, okay, all right, right. I'm in my weird place and you guys are taking care of me. And there's like a an appreciation almost in the way that she tells the story mm-hmm. that doesn't scream serial killer. No, no. 
Um, she was really pleased with herself on page 73 that she stood up to her dad, but it was super telling. She says, after the arrest, he said he was like a pot, slowly heating and occasionally blowing its lid. The key to surviving life with dad, watching the pot cautiously turn down the heat and know when to get out of its way before it blows. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, okay. That doesn't sound like a safe, loving environment to me. No. It's just hard because she's looking at it with hindsight. Well, yes. I mean, there's lots of people who live with people who behave this way, and they're not serial killers. No, not at all. Right. But it's still very challenging. Well, and that's just, it's important to know that this is why you can't let let progress be an excuse for apathy or status quo. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just because it's not serial killer doesn't mean you can accept domestic violence. And just because it's not domestic violence doesn't mean you have to accept emotional violence. And just because it's not emotional violence doesn't mean you have to accept disrespect. Everybody should be always working towards a relationship that is aimed towards safe and secure and loving all of those times. It's mm-hmm. not okay to just say, oh, well, because it's not BTK, it's fine, whatever it is. That's yeah. not the case. No, it's still n- not fine. His behavior wasn't fine. fine, even if he wasn't a serial killer. Kind of right. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. So, yeah. 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 And it's interesting to see that. But then how horrible it is that it really turned out that way. Wow. Yeah. And then even in their letters later, like how carefully and politely she treads with him. So she's asking him, begging him to plead guilty so that the family doesn't have to go through a trial. Mm -hmm. And still, she's so polite about it on 207. We know that you're still deciding on your final plea, but the family feels that if you are guilty, then you know you're guilty. And why do you have to look at the evidence? We don't really understand the legal issues involved, but are trying to respect your decision. Things would be much easier on us media-wise and court-wise if you were able to plead guilty, but we know that's ultimately up to you. I mean, in a letter... So kind. So kind, which I respect so much, but it's also such a careful way to treat somebody who's been so heinous. Right. She's so... I mean, and it just goes to show how really ingrained all that was in her. Absolutely. And it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Well, she also grew up in an environment of submission. Right. And I think that that has a lot to do with why he was able to separate his lives um, and also why the family was so willing to accept such levels of submission and not require that he become a better person in the marriage, like from his wife's perspective or, you know, in the family. Carrie didn't get it as much as the wife did or her brother. Right. Which she kind of recognizes throughout the book. Right. But she grew up in a time when BTK was a, a leader in the church, like president of the church board and body. He had all sorts of control there. They were a very traditional Christian home. Mm -hmm. And she grew up in uh, what a lot of people term as purity culture um, with Campus Crusade. In fact, the story about her and her husband and how they were friends. And then he was praying for the wife and she's praying for the husband. And when they finally get together, it's, okay, we've gone from friends to let's get married. 
that was very indicative of of the purity culture at the time, mm-hmm. where they just they didn't believe in dating; they believed in marriage. Yeah, courtship. And so, yeah. courtship. And so all of those things also come with it a certain amount of um, demureness on the part of women. Yeah, a and deference so, to yeah. Her so father. I wonder how much that had to do with how well it it went for BTK to keep it separate for that long, and how hard it was then for her because. To stand up to her dad in the canyon, that would have been huge for almost any girl in that kind of family anyway. Yeah. It really would have been. Right. So it's, uh, I spent a lot of time just mulling over that in my mind because she's had a very complicated life. Yeah. Yeah, she has. (laughs) (laughs) It's not, it's not been simple. No. (laughs) No. No, not at all. But I will say this, all of those things being easy to explain away and still shocking that he's a serial killer, the sheer amount of them over and over and over again. It was often, it was all the time, and she had other symptoms in her life, Mm. other signs in her life that showed that she was not okay. Her intense fear from childhood, intense amount of traumas, right? perceived traumas. Yeah. Um, So that's something. Yeah. We'll definitely get to some of that in a little bit because I'm kind of talking about Dennis a little bit and his actions. And then we're going to kind of talk about how Carrie was affected by some of these things. But I have a couple more things I want to point out. Okay. Um, Before we get to how Carrie was really affected by this, because I really want like more of the story to be about her because this is her story. It is her story. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm not going to talk very much about his crimes because... It's gross. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get the word true crime podcast <laughs> and that sometimes we talk about gross things, but he's particularly heinous and I hate that people sort of worship him. Yeah. It's, it's gross and I don't understand it, but whatever. But he really, he used people. Mm-hmm. He used people f- forever and he particularly how he used his life quote-unquote to hide his nefarious behavior Mm -hmm. it felt like his life wasn't real and i'm sure that being the larger portion of his life that was perhaps the more real but there was always this dark monster underneath Mm -hmm. lurking there and he used his boy scout leader position so that he could slip away and kill someone and then go back and he, he the whole thing about the uh trip to South Padre that they had to miss or Padre Island that was probably up near Corpus Christi is where mm-hmm. they were planning to go. Uh so that would have been Padre Island, not South Padre Island, which is down near Mexico. Right. If you're not from Texas, you might not know these things, but it would have made more sense that they would have been in uh Padre, Padre. Island because it's uh, much closer to where they lived. You know, he was mad because he just killed someone and had planned a vacation around when he was planning to murder someone so that he would be out of town. Yep. I mean, just like the level that he was using them. And then, you know, my other note that I made was that second worst to the killings was the way he seemed to really view his family. But I hadn't thought of it like you pointed out earlier that, you know, he called them a social contract and she was so angry. So whether or not that was just a narrative, 
It was still really hurtful to oh, it was her. Horrible. My family lived with and loved this man for decades. We fed him. We did his laundry. We took care of him. When he was sick and injured, I adored him, even though he could be a brute. And now he called us social contracts. How dare he? He could rot in hell. Agreed. I I mean, I completely agree. I absolutely agree. And here's my thing with if it was just the sentencing sort of behavior this the what do you call it uh the plot the ploy the like the, the, the taking responsibility no uh no, like no, the, the 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 narrative that okay. they were trying to oh, right. portray uh, you know that how can you love your family and also right um do these awful things that it would come off as ingenuous mm-hmm. he was going to prison for the rest of his life oh yes definitely he should never have said this well, no. I mean, he well, he should have never said it anyways, no matter what. what right. But I mean, lawyers just... do this, and they craft narratives. And it's not even about whether he's getting death sentence or life sentence. At this point, it's really just about how many privileges he's going to have. How much money does he get per month in, in the commissary? You know, these are the things they're fighting for. Because you're right, he's going to prison. So what they're fighting for is yard time, what kind of stuff he gets in his, in, you know, if he doesn't seem to be taking full responsibility, he may not get certain privileges. Wow. Right? Okay. And so they're fighting for the best life inside that they can, which is horrible. It is horrible because I'm like, he doesn't deserve a good life inside. He doesn't deserve it. The Soft le- shoes. The least and whatever. The, yeah. Yeah. He misses his coffee and his robe. And his like house shoes and... Yeah, I mean, these things, but those are the things that they, the creature comforts, uh-huh. as she yeah. notes that he likes to call them, uh-huh. are very important to him. When that's all you've got, I guess that's, you craft a narrative and you throw your family under the bus to get it. Oh, God. That's the narcissism, right? I, gu- I guess. Horrible. I guess. And it's all heinous. I, he should have never said it, and, you know, and I, I would err on authenticity all of the time, but... Ugh. Well, but you know, this is why you and I aren't serial killers. Right? We, not err, we will err on the side of authenticity, and he will not because he was a lying liarson for decades. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Carrie shares a lot about how she was affected by his actions. And I think even some of the things she put in here realized she was being affected by them on some level. But I don't know that she really, reading it from an outside perspective, I think maybe we could see a little more. Yeah, you mentioned how she was so afraid that, you know, he killed a neighbor when she was six. Mm -hmm. And she had night terrors after that because she was so afraid. Now, he had also spent a lot of time teaching them to be afraid of strangers. Right, teaching them diligence and vigilance. Yes, because he knew he was the stranger that people should be afraid of. Mm-hmm. And he taught them very, very well about how to handle that. I mean, that. too well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's arguments. That's not going to be a part of our discussion later, but I did read some articles about how being too afraid of strangers can actually be very detrimental. And that, oh, yeah. yeah, it's... Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah. Stranger danger was one of the biggest mistakes our country made as far as an initiative. It just went too far. Well, yeah, because the people who are going to hurt you the most are usually people you know. Yep. Yeah. 
So it's sad. But he did. They taught him to, both kids to be very vigilant. But she did. She had like night terrors and certain fears about things. And they were related to the ways that her dad had perpetrated his crimes. Not that she knew it at the time, not when she was six and being afraid of, you know, a cinder block being, you know, thrown through a door because Mm -hmm. that's what happened to her neighbor. And then it's so creepy because he's like so reassuring. You're safe. Yeah. Because he's not coming after her. Right. (gasps) Yeah. That's, That's the psychological trauma right there. But she was. I think the more you read it, initially you get these points and you're like, that could have happened to anybody. Uh huh. So it's horrible. And then over time, it builds a really interesting narrative that says, wow, this was a constant thing. And you had constant trauma. And it's, she doesn't really quite connect those dots. Not for a long time. No, but it's kind of interesting to read her narrative on it. Mm-hmm. And the things maybe she even unconsciously chose to include connect those dots for us. Absolutely. Yeah. She carries a lot of guilt, too. On page 41, she talks about um, how she wishes she'd turn him in. And I'm like, turn him in for what? For being a jerk? I mean, right? I mean, she says, uh, I tucked away deep within me this outburst of my father's telling no one till he was arrested. What would have happened if we had called the police that night? Would they have done anything? Would they have questioned him enough to find decades-long terror hiding behind the rage? The questions still haunt me. And the fact is, no. In the 80s, nobody was going to question this church deacon, Mm -mm. this church leader, this upstanding man who obtained a college degree after he'd already had children Nobody was going to question him. No. And to back up, just to clarify, this was after a pretty severe incident because it was after his, uh, her dad had choked her brother. Right. Burst out in rage and just started choking him. But her mom and her were able to pull him off. And right. then when he snapped out of it, her mom stood up. We'll handle it. You go outside. You know, and um, then she whispers in her voice the weariness that Carrie talks about. You haven't been here this past week. It's been a lot. You've been gone. To Carrie, her mom's whispering comes out, and there's just a weirdness there. And so I get why they thought, well, they could have called the police, but I think you're absolutely right. In that day and age, they would have been like, "Mm, the father lost it on his kid. Yeah. It's a one-time deal. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. The kid probably deserved it. That, yeah. That's what it would have been the attitude, especially since he was hit the positions he was yep. in his professional life. So she started reading about the cases in 2004 when the anniversary of the Otero's death came around and they did a uh, special, just a weird word to use. <laughs> For a documentary about the a thirty year old unsolved murder, I mean it's a special episode because it's a one off. It's not part of a series, but it's not. It gets weird, right? It's special, yeah. I mean it's, it's special in that those people are dead, and we're sad for that. English is an intention driven language. There's no word for this, right? Ex- <laughs> ex- exactly, <laughs> and. You know, I've so felt for her because she's reading about BTK's activities, Mm -hmm. which 
in hindsight had to be super weird. Though I understand the desire to look at and examine the terrible behavior of a a serial killer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of people do this. I mean, we we, look at the, do. we we do and look at this and it's interesting and we don't condone it, but it is interesting to kind of try and understand how these people work and maybe how we can prevent people from becoming serial killers in the future. But, you know, there were details that nagged at her. Nagged at her. Yes. Things that were weird didn't settle. It was very interesting. It it was very interesting. And I really like empathize with her, how, how strange that must've been and how easy it would have been to say, well, that's weird. But I, this only sits this way with me because they're, these things all happened in the town where I lived. So it's easy to make a connection. You know, there were probably a lot of people who were nagged by the details of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, probably so. Yeah. But it is strange to see how she was affected so deeply with an indirect connection. It, it's just very strange. You know, but the stamps, like things that he did, you know, that kind of, connected the dots but you're right it's so easy to mitigate why that's not the case well then who would really expect their somebody that you've lived your life with to do this kind of stuff no matter their brutish behavior no matter their quick to anger their whatever all the warning signs you could possibly come up with well and it's it's double it's double layered because it's it's about the benefit of the doubt and the grace and love you have for the person, but it's also a fear of what that says about you that you didn't realize it until now. And so you put that together and it's very hard to break through that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I felt so bad for her on page 160. Guilty as charged. I'm BTK's daughter. No longer Carrie. She's gone. She really lost herself, at least for a time. It makes me mad that... He was able to have this sweet, compassionate woman be his daughter. And I'm so glad that she is. I'm glad she's not this like terrible brute like he is. <laughs> yeah. But he doesn't deserve the sweetness. On 215, dad would be contained, protected from himself. He would never harm another. He would never have to pretend, hide behind a facade. Everyone now knew who and what he was. Dad might find some sort of relief in that. I mean, I don't think I could come up with that level of compassion. No. Even if I could intellectually say it, I don't think it would go to my heart. You know, and who knows how long it took for these things to go to her heart, you know. Yeah. Um, In his letters, you start to see that, how they've merged. The two people have merged and see which one's sort of winning because see the other side of him is so much more important for survival where he is. And so that starts to be fed more mm-hmm. and you can see it in the way that he writes his letters. And there's this weird way that he writes his letters. Um, and I wonder if, if it was the same sort of cadences he had all along or whether this particular to afterwards and only Carrie could, could notice that, but she never mentions the way that he talks before or that he came off narcissistic before she mentions a couple of times how he could stand up and pretend to be 
the in-charge police officer type. Like, he could mimic them. But that all around, he was much more, eh. But in the letters, there's this weird thing. Tonight, on TV3, my poems show up. Last night, they show a letter on the news. Speaking of family wishes for closure, it was type and out of focus, so you could not tell. I think it was fake. Huh. It sounds weird, right? It does sound weird. Um, he has a couple of those, actually. Um, I have many people write me, accept me, don't condone what happened, but our friends. This is the way I treat people here. Accept, but don't condone them. There's a certain weird narcissistic cadence and... Uh, well, he still feels like he's better than other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's strange. There is a chance I may be able to work, but my age, I don't know. I'm so close to retirement. The prison jobs may not pay well or none. Bottom line, either the family support me, visit, letters, monetary, or I will have to create another support system. There's a there's narcissism, a and then there's like there. an accusatory term, and then there's some sort of awkward declaration. It sounds like certain Twitter feed. Uh-huh, yeah. Well... If you won't support me, I'll find people who do. If you won't accept me, I'll find people who do. With me, you you love me. You're good. Yes. Great. Uh That's wisdom. Against me, you are bad. Go away. Do this. Be with me or you're against me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certain people are fantastic at that <laughs> on tweeting. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, it's weird to read his letters and feel that cadence and go, where have I read that before? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh. That's troubling. Speaking to that, she really finally realizes how little she means to them and how little he's recognized how his actions affected the family. Yes. And 241... She writes to him, life isn't the same for you, but it's not the same for us either. Our lives changed forever on February 25th. And by no choice of our own, you separated those two lives you led. Never let them intersect. You seemed fine with this and you seem to not understand why we're not fine with it also. Yeah, it's a weird narcissism. He really does not get that him being caught... I mean, it was all, it's, it's bad for him because he's in jail now, but it's really bad for the family who's, you know, they don't have the same level of acceptance. There's acceptance that has to happen in prison because they're not allowed to kill one another in there. You know, I mean, you're not really allowed to kill anyone anywhere, really. Just to clarify. (laughs) Just to clarify. (laughs) It's never acceptable. But there are people in there helping to enforce that because they are a higher risk population. Right. (laughs) And he does, in some of his letters, he talks about his street cred and how he's popular. And he sits at the head of the table, he says. And it's weird. But he doesn't. He doesn't think that their their lives are bad. He doesn't even understand that going to the grocery store would have been a challenge for them. He mm-hmm. doesn't understand that at all. He thinks what he did is what he did and they just stir around for it. Right. He doesn't get that his actions are that they're bad. the te- they're, they're the 11th victim. Yes. And then I felt so bad for her as she came up on her 29th birthday realizing that her father had committed his first crimes 
at 29, I think just the level of awareness that she didn't want to be like him speaks volumes as to how different a place they were in their lives at 29 that he was thinking and had been thinking about murder and she is desperate to feel to know that she's not going to have those same feelings because she doesn't want to have them. Now, if she'd had them after all this, I think she would have gone and gotten help, which is not something that he did or would have probably even known to do. Well, I think she was afraid that like you get to 29 and then all of a sudden (laughs) the gene would open up and she would be all of a sudden murderous. But he was, he was planning far before that. But knowing that that's the age, that's it's triggering. It's just triggering. And then I felt also really bad for her with the whole, the birth of her first child. Mm-hmm. You know, it's she's due near her father's birthday, and she's so afraid that her baby is going to be born on her father's birthday, and then she wishes she'd had the C-section, and then the baby's born and everything's fine, and her husband calls the baby Peaches, and she wishes her dad were there to hold and kiss her baby. It's such an interesting dichotomy of she doesn't want him there, she doesn't want her baby born on the to share a birthday with her father. No. But she also misses at least the idea of a father there to share in her joy. She, uh, yeah, she misses the dad that she had, mm-hmm. that she thought she had. Yeah. You know, um, and she has to grieve that loss. Right. Because it's not him. And one of the hardest things to do is to reconcile the fact that who she knew him to be was still real in her life, even though that wasn't real. Right. And put that to bed and then understand that her wish is really for that person mm-hmm. <laughs> that didn't ever exist, but existed just as real to her. So it's just, oh. Yeah. Webs. Yeah. It's you're caught in a web. Mm-hmm. I really felt for the family where they looked back and they were looking at things that they wished they had recognized that he was BTK, like that he spelled like BTK and that he immediately understood why BTK used a cereal box to talk to the police. So it was a serial killer and that fascination with which he watched that television special. Can I tell you? Okay. (laughs) When I read about that little situation where he was like, oh, serial box, serial killer. I was like, oh my God, he's a dad and a serial killer. And he just made a serial killer dad <laughs> joke. And it's awful. But he did. He made a serial killer dad joke. Oh, uh-huh. The serial killer can make a dad joke about being a serial killer. It's really, I don't know, like my mind just melted. Oh, yes. <laughs> so like... And, uh, but the, her grandmother pointed out that Dennis worked down the hall from the police and they didn't know it was him. They did not know. They didn't know. So they should cut themselves a little slack. Yep. (laughs) But I really love how Carrie's husband (laughs) didn't want to get into a technical conversation with his Mm father-in-law. And so just flat lied and told him 
no, they can't track where a disc came from because he didn't want to try and explain that to Dennis. Right. He don't get the impression that he really liked Dennis very much. Not much. He didn't really care for him. I mean, but a lot of people don't like their in-laws. Yeah. I mean, right. And a lot of people don't like explaining tech to their parents or grandparents. Yeah, older people. Yeah. You know, I can see. But it's interesting that that's the linchpin of the story. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And I really... I think and I hope that Darian would have told them the same thing if he'd known. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he obviously, if they'd known, they'd if have turned him in. But, yeah. but, you know, if he'd known and for some reason not felt like he could turn him in, then hopefully I think he would have told them the same thing. Hopefully. Yeah. But, okay, so obviously this is true because this is Carrie's lived experience. Right. But we're going to come back and talk about what's true after this quick break. I'm Christy. And this is Josh. And we are the Mountains and the Sea. It's a podcast about Prince and his vast musical output. We look at each and every Prince album. And ancillary material like fashion, videos, related artists, B-sides, remixes, outtakes. We choose a high, the mountain, a low, the sea, and a time capsule. Yeah, those are her dumb rules, not mine. Josh is a Prince superfan and has been since long before I met him. That's right, and I pulled Christy over to the purple side with my wit and my charm. The music helped. (laughs) Join us every other week, anywhere you get your podcasts and happy purple listening friends. Thanks for sticking with us through that quick break. We're back with, is it true? So let's just, Dennis Rader is definitely BTK. Yes, like that's true. Like he admitted it. He did kill 10 people in Wichita, Kansas metro area. He did send letters to the police taunting them. That was how he ultimately got caught. Did show signs at an early age that uh, this kind of behavior was something that he had a proclivity for. Uh, He had sexual fantasies about torturing trapped and helpless women. He exhibited zoosadism, where he tortured and killed small animals. Mm Mm-hmm. He would spy on neighbors while dressed in women's clothing. Um, And then he would later pretend to be his victims. So while he was in between victims, he'd pretend to be them to sort of relive it, which is just... Yeah, they try to satisfy the the urge there. Yeah. Um, He did indeed throw a cinder block through Dolores Davis's sliding glass door. Um, And I think the reason that he was so cavalier about not to worry about a sliding glass door or that a cinder block would go through it was because he himself didn't plan that. It was a uh, sort of a, the opportunity he had, Mm. like he'd cased the place, but hadn't quite made all the plans that maybe he should have. And he couldn't figure out how to get into her apartment. And so he looked around and saw that there was a cinder block and threw it through her sliding glass door. It wasn't a planned out thing. And that's why he wasn't so worried about it because he, he was like, yeah, if they really want to get to you, they'll find a way to get to you. She wasn't killed because she had a sliding glass door. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why he was so cavalier about it. Oh yeah. Just, he did include his 
family's names in the, a word search that he taunted police with. There's an interesting uh, website that has uh, Zodiac Killer also did word searches. They love these kind of logic problems. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. And um, somebody, the person who was examining Zodiac Killer puzzles also looked at this BTK puzzle, and they've got a really interesting, I'll put a link to it, where you can look for certain words within their puzzles, and it'll show you how, if, where they are, how loosely they are, you know, so you could make an argument that there are a lot of words in these that they maybe didn't intend, but Carrie, Paula, and Brian are all in in the crossword in puzzle. The cro- not not super linear, not like you would find it if you had one in the paper, but linearly enough that it was probably intentional. Hmm. That really every character in that had some sort of meaning. Oh, yeah, I know. Ooh. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Isn't that weird? It's a lot of work. I mean, I get that you need a hobby, but for Pete's sake. Yeah. It's just, it's a weird expression of who they are. Like you and I like Ikea and those little (laughs) succulent plants that are fake and the little white things. We love these are expressions of, but this is an expression of who he is. And that's what he does. It's it's really strange. Mm -hmm. I agree. Carrie did recognize her father's voice on a 911 phone call. She talked about it in an uh, an interview with Zach Schoenfeld of Slate in February of 2019. But she didn't hear that until the night of her father's arrest. So her father was arrested, an FBI agent, which I thought that was very astute of the FBI to dispatch somebody to go talk to her in person Mm -hmm. as it was happening or just after it happened so that she wouldn't hear about it on the news. Yeah. And um, she talks a little bit about that in the book, how it was coordinated. It was her and Brian. Right. And the mom. Right. They had a coordinated effort. Right. Partly because they needed to not contaminate the stories either. You know, so it's twofold. Right. You know, and of course, she, you know, defends her father and then goes searching. That's totally something I would do. Like, yeah, defend oh. your parent and then they leave and you're like, okay, what does the internet have to say about this? And she hears a 911 call that is definitely BTK. He basically says as much in the 911 uh, yeah. call mm-hmm. and from 1977 calls and says he's murdered somebody. And she said she instantly recognized that it was her father. And it's horrible. It is. It's horrible and shocking and sickening. And oh. it's horrible on one level. I'm glad she was a kind of alone when she had that moment because she probably needed space. Yeah. To, to work through the quick denials and all of that kind of stuff to get there because she needed to know the truth. But on the other hand, it's so sad that that's how she had to come to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, I felt so bad for her when she, they asked her if she ever came across a kill kit. And the kill kit is a, a tornado kit. So they lived in Kansas. You would have a tornado kit available 
all the time because mm-hmm. that's something you need to be concerned about on a regular basis. And what do those kits include? Well, yeah, they include things like water and food and flashlights and a hand crank radio and a first aid kit. And they yeah. also include things like plastic sheeting and duct tape and garbage bags and plastic ties and tools, wrenches and pliers and things like that. Yep. All the kinds of things that he probably would have kept in his kill kit mm-hmm. are things that it was yeah. to, would be totally normal to have all in one place in Kansas in your house. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he kept that in there like that under their noses as well as other things. But he was strict about don't touch my stuff. Right. He kept guns in her closet. Oh, that's gross. You know, and, um, you know, totes and certain things. And so as she's cleaning out the house, she starts to realize that these things have been under her nose, but they just didn't quite put it together. You well, know? and that, why would you? Why, why would, would you? you? Why would you? Right? Ugh. I mean, he was a jerk. Okay. Well, a lot of people are jerks and they're not serial killers. Mm-hmm. He had a kit with all these supplies in it. Who okay. didn't? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody does in Kansas because you have to be ready to go if there's a tornado. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I mean... The gun thing, though, like, when she was like, who keeps rifles in their kid's closet? That's weird. (laughs) That that is weird. That is weird. That is weird. And just shows his level of selfishness as Mm -hmm. well. The house was indeed uh, purchased by the city, and they did make it an entrance to the park that was behind it. Jardine Memorial Park needed an entrance... Anyway, because it was kind of cut off, and uh, they said that they would have really needed to buy a house and made the entrance there, and this opportunity presented itself because uh, Paula wasn't able to sell the home. And in fact, somebody was going to buy it in July of 2005. Michelle Boren was going to buy it for about $33,000 over its appraised value, which was only $90,000. It was not a very expensive home. But that ended up getting taken to court because they wanted to know what was going to happen to the proceeds. Was it going to go to the victims of his crimes? And so they ended up just basically paying off the mortgage so that she wasn't saddled with that anymore. It was a horrible story to read just the devastating effects. And I understand why the victims got together and sued for these proceeds. And on the other hand, it was kind of like, but they're victims too. Yes. And so it was just really sad. So I was really happy to read that somebody had helped her out, Mm -hmm. but then she lost all the, the, the wealth that she had built, the equity, the right. Oh, just, yeah. Yeah. Sad. She she should have been able to have that for retirement. And rightfully, the victims' families wanted some sort of compensation. And I get it. I get it. I mean there's no winners. No, they're really well no. Dennis Rader he Mm. went to prison, but he got what he wanted out of it first. And ugh. It's gross to think that he's the winner. Um he was really well liked, Dennis was um at his church. Because he was very helpful, but a lot of people did not like him as professionally. 
he was not well liked at work. He wasn't liked by his neighbors. He was a compliance officer for many years. And, you know, he'd go around and measure people's grass with rulers and write them citations because he wanted control. Yeah. Control was part of his... He just wanted some sort of authority. Uh Uh-huh, and would wield it at any opportunity. But true to form, who did he wield it over the most? Single women. Mm Mm-hmm. People he felt more powerful than. A subordinate of his, where he worked as the compliance officer, filed grievance after grievance against him. Uh, she suffered a constant barrage of belittling attacks. No one was as smart as Dennis Rader. And then a neighbor, James Reno, said he was mean-spirited and a coward. He never messed with me. He always picked on single women on the street whom he could bully. It's just so indicative and mm-hmm. cowardly. It's uh, not uncommon to read those. And no. it's weird because... Carrie doesn't talk about those perspectives at all. And I wonder if she knew that other people held those perspectives or whether she just didn't include it in her story. I mean, she probably, she probably knew, but thought it was normal. I mean, she grew up in purity culture. That's totally normal. Yeah, maybe so. You know, she just maybe just rationalized it or maybe she agreed with it on some level, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Who knows? But there is a... Just, There's an unsettledness to the way that other people from the outside are able to have that sort of mm-hmm. sniffer instinct, like, right. you're creepy. Yeah. You know? And uh, y- you, we all meet people like that. That for some reason, you're just like, mm-mm. Yeah. Two steps back. No. It's, it's, just, a, it's just a gut feeling, you well, know? Do you, does it make you wonder... What he was like when he and Paula got married. Was he different? Did he act different? Was he better at hiding it? Did she not know any better? Was she attracted to the level of power he seemed to exude? The self-confidence that he had? Well, he wasn't a threat to her. I wonder right. if she had a gut instinct. I mean, we all have met people who it's it's like immediately there's friction and you're like, Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's wrong, but this is not right. Right. But that person has family or has friends. And sometimes you have to go back and reevaluate because the friction didn't have to do with them. It had to do with something else. And you end up, I don't know, being great friends. I, you know, sometimes over time you are more sure in your, in your hesitation and yet other people remain completely loyal to that person. And those are those times where you're like, I don't know, but my gut instinct, everything about it is saying, Mm-mm. yeah, no, Run this is not right. Direction. Why don't they? Maybe because they're not a threat to them. Mm, that's interesting. I had a situation one time with, with somebody that I, I struggled to get along with over time. And it was uh, mostly at like work. Like it was more of a colleague situation years ago. Um, but the more that I struggled and I tried because I figured it was something of a, a personality preference or just trying to make sure I hadn't done anything offensive. Like every time I tried to combat it some other way and thought I was making progress, it was like one more time. No, something's not right. But a close friend at the time was telling me how wonderful this person was. And they said something very interesting. They said, well, this person's kind of against you until you prove yourself and then they're for you. And then once they're for you, they're the best friend you can possibly have. 
And I couldn't help but think that's one reason I will never be friends with them. And I'm glad that you're on their good side. But the fact that that's even the case, I I don't need everybody to be our best friends right off, but that I have to prove myself, that I have to be... And I think, why am I a threat right now that has to prove to you that I'm not a threat? Why do you have to prove yourself and they don't have to prove themselves to you? Right. So there was no mutual respect. There was something odd about it. Yeah. But Mm. I will say later on, I felt my suspicions were totally confirmed. I'm not at all surprised. But does that person still have friends and things? Yeah. Yeah. People we still have in common. Uh, yeah, so it's weird. So maybe he wasn't a threat to her. Maybe mm. Dennis wasn't a threat to Paula. He didn't have many friends. Well, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. They were I, a very insular sort of family. Yeah, I could imagine there would be very few people, select people, that weren't at risk in mm-hmm. his presence. Right. Psychology break. <laughs> Yay. Okay, so I know you have some stuff that we're going to talk about, but... Uh, before we get to that, Carrie said she wished she'd gone to counseling sooner because now she has PTSD. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to post this article that's kind of how to prevent trauma from becoming P- PTSD from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And basically, it says that people want to push the pain away mm-hmm. and ignore it. And that's really the worst thing you can do because it's keeping your mind in a constant state of threat. Mm-hmm. And that if you deal with it, you're able to work past it so that you don't have this constant high level of anxiety. And uh, so I think she really felt like Carrie did that her PTSD came from the events surrounding her father's arrest. Mm-hmm. I would argue it goes much, much further back. I would too. Because um, she was really lived her life in a constant state of threat of not being able to predict how her father was going to behave in a given situation. Right. And it might have been a buildup and then the arrest sort of kind of solidified it. And And it it is. This is important to know because if you have any kind of trauma, you will have post-traumatic stress. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it's not 100% that you can prevent post-traumatic stress disorder. No. But there are. Like, embrace it, debrief immediately with that stress, and sleep. Lots of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, this sounds horrible, but to, everybody has a, a chance of having something traumatic happen to them. Uh, preventing PTSD actually goes before the trauma. Have good sleep hygiene. If you have good sleep Mm. hygiene before, you are at much less risk of developing PTSD post-traumatic stress. Um, Yeah. So the sleep is helpful for healing, but but those who often talk about the symptoms of stress and, and the sleep disruptions that happen afterwards, they also on some level tend to have also had sleep issues before. And it's mm. enough of a enough of an association that it suggests that, you know, we know that sleep hygiene is good for us anyway. Well, this is very very good for preparing you to deal with the un- unexpected in life. So if you're well rested, you can deal with unexpected situations more effectively. Yeah, more rested. Yep. Your memories are already consolidated well. You're functioning at a better level. And then you're able to apply that good sleep hygiene well afterwards because it's something that you don't have to just learn from scratch. Cool. And then when you can sleep and debrief, 
then your mind can do the hard work. Good. Okay. All right. So I know you wanted to talk about the confound of mentally ill and murderers. Yeah. This is not a popular conversation. (laughs) It's an interesting conversation, though. And it stems from kind of what I was saying earlier about people don't want to reconcile Mm -hmm. the idea that he might cherish his wife and be a serial killer. We kind of get stuck in this loop. We say, why do serial killers kill people? Well, they're mentally ill. Why are they mentally ill? Because they kill people. And we kind of say that, and we think we're saying something, but we're actually kind of stuck in a loop. We're, we're saying, we know he's mentally ill because he killed people. Well, why did he kill people? Because he's mentally ill. And it's actually a logical loop. Okay. Um, so it's circular logic. Right. Um, and so it's not to say that there aren't mentally ill individuals who kill people. By and large, that's not the case. Uh, by and large, mm-hmm. most people who are mentally ill do not kill people. Right. Um, but... But it's like, it's hard because you look at a serial killer and you're like, if anybody is mentally ill, it's got to be them. So it kind of bends into philosophy a little bit, into into maybe even uh, spirituality. Where does mentally ill end and just plain old human depravity begin? Hmm. And that's the question. If they don't exhibit many other, a diagnosis, Mm -hmm. but they kill people. Can serial killers be just a profile? It's not enough of us of a profile for us to diagnose it before it happens, so therefore we can't totally be sure. Okay. So you don't think that we could look back at their previous actions and in hindsight diagnose something? Not so much. No. Not as black and white as that. Okay. Uh, there's an article in The Atlantic from 10 years ago, so it's fairly old, but... It's just a counterpoint. Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you because I certainly think that there are people who can murder who are not mentally ill. They're just depraved and horrible. Mm-hmm. Lane Wallace wrote this and um, she says, indeed, most psychologists would say that all of us sit somewhere on the spectrum of traits included in the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. A person who, who is classified as mentally ill simply sits at a much more extreme point along that spectrum. So I kind of thought of it as like blood pressure. We all have blood pressure. And if it's too low or too high, it's a problem. Right. It's a dimensional approach (laughs) right? right? on the personality traits. Mm -hmm. So so you could look at, well, most people sit somewhere on there and they have, everybody has a little bit of psychosis somewhere. (laughs) None of us are immune from, from being a, a little, a little touched in some way, but that doesn't, you know, where, like you said, where does that make us human and where does that make us disordered? Right. Yes. Jonathan Pincus of Georgetown university and Dorothy Lewis of New York university did uh, research together and they found that murderers tend to have a lethal combination of childhood abuse, neurological disturbances and psychiatric illness and that in two of the studies that they did, 100% of the people had a head trauma as a child. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Well, and we do know a decent amount about TBI and how that impacts people. The mm-hmm. story of Heron Hernandez yeah. is 
case in point for that. Um, no, I, I mean, that's, that's the problem. We have to make sure that we're uh, acknowledging the potential loop so that we can study it appropriately. Okay. I'm not really landing on either side of whether serial killers are mentally ill or not. I tend to think they likely are, but we have to be careful of the loop. We have to be acknowledging that because otherwise we'll miss all of the other things that show you what their mental illness is or what it's not. So it's like, are you mentally ill? Do you have a personality disorder because you're a jerk or are you Mm -hmm. just a jerk? Right. We kind of get that on that level. Right. People say, oh, I'm so OCD. Well, no, you're not. Yeah. Actually, just because you like a clean house, (laughs) you're not OCD. Right. It's a you know, cliche and a meme, you're not actually OCD. So we understand that those loops, when we talk about serial killers, there's something inside us that can't separate that. Well, we really want to other them. We want to other them. We want to not feel like it could be us. That's correct. Yeah. Now they might have some mental disorder, but okay. So Dennis Rader was uh, absolutely narcissistic. Lacked empathy. So if we're talking about the dimensional scale that Miss Lane was talking about, on the dimensional scale of personalities, he would probably rank really high on narcissism. He'd probably rank really low on empathy. There, would, the, there was lots of other dimensions that would probably paint a profile that millions have. Right. They're not all serial killers. Well, and that's just the thing. Like A diagnosis requires signs and symptoms of mm-hmm. some sort, some sort of profile. Right. And so it's that's why this situation is so hard because they might be mentally ill and that might not be why they kill people. <laughs> so, they might be both a murderer and mentally ill, but they might not be the cause of one another. So Bill Cosby, to use a oh. silly example. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, oh, the only way we can laugh at Bill Cosby is, <laughs> you know, when he's... But I used to be in love with his comedy. Oh, me too. His his whole album himself, mm-hmm. that one, oh, it was amazing. So in that album, he's talking about uh, people who are getting drunk or getting stoned or whatever, and he's at a party, and he's asking, well, why do people do cocaine? You know, and they're like, oh, it just makes you feel like more yourself. It just allows you to express yourself. And he goes, yeah, but what if you're a jerk? He's talking about himself. Well, kind of. But that's kind of the point. Like, do these dimensional personalities make them a serial killer or do they just take the filter off so they can express who they really are? Wow. I think about this a lot because, you know, in our culture, we've gotten a little more casual which I love because I like sweatpants mm-hmm. a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I love casual, but I also like being professional in a lot of ways. My kids would always laugh at me because in some ways I'll be wearing sweatpants and pajamas, but the fork still has to be on the right side of the plate. <laughs> and so they're like, I don't understand your like manners thing here. And yes, I grew up with mom who was like, I had to. And so once a year I make them set out the entire thing, the whole Christmas dinner, the silver, everything has to be in place. I want them to learn these manners. And they're like, well, I don't understand that. I was like, because manners help us all to be together more kindly. And so one of my kids, I was asking, how does that help? I said, because jerks have to follow the manners and that keeps them from being jerks. All the time. They can be a terrible, terrible person, but at dinner, if they act right, it helps society to function. 
We can't handle everybody just being themselves because if they're themselves, we'll find out how many people really aren't awesome. <laughs> Manners help society go smoothly. You know, like helps us maintain the veil of yes. awesomeness for some people. A little bit. I mean, oh, how geez. can you work with somebody who is just? If you ever have somebody who says, "Oh, I don't have a filter anymore," da 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 da. Yeah, they're and I'm just like, a jerk. You just need a filter because you are kind of jerky, and that filter is really helpful for society. Like there are other people, and like take off the filter because it expresses how amazing you are. Please don't filter that character. But a mm-hmm. lack of filter really reveals your character. Well, the manners help us all to cover up that which is not great. They are a filter. They are a filter. Manners are a filter. You know, mm. so what if these dimensional kind of personality traits sort of take the filter away and then what we get are human depravity? Those are questions that you have to ask in research and, and you have to avoid the circular logic if you want to ask those questions authentically. Mm. Wow, that's a lot to think about. I know. It's like me telling you that gravity doesn't exist. Oh, God. When she did, (laughs) she told me that. And then I shared it with my son. There's this whole video. We'll have to post that. FaceTime, not gravity. And it's wild. Mind melting. Uh Uh-huh. And it's like 20-something minutes long. But I was like, maybe I'll just skip to the part. No, but I... Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, oh. And then you get to the end where you're finally learning about it all and your brain just goes yeah. right out your ears and you're like. It's world shattering. It really is. But awesome. But awesome. <laughs> like legitimately awesome. Not covered up. Not covered up. <laughs> no filter. No matter. This is just straight out. Raw awesomeness. <laughs> all right real life so obviously again all real life but dennis was really really worried when he had a surgery that he was going to spill his secrets under anesthesia is that something we need to be worried about is that no oh okay (laughs) no no Basically, uh, there was a lot of uh, this article in the New York Times by Richard Friedman. Now, again, another old article, 2004. Dennis Reader wasn't even arrested yet. He was sitting on his couch watching a documentary about himself. Oh, so weird. <laughs> but it's still salient. He, he gets a lot of anecdotal evidence from uh, physicians that he spoke to. And... Uh, Then he cites a study. Now, in a classical study, normal controls who had revealed an embarrassing secret before the start of the experiment were able to stick to a made-up cover story and avoid confessing when given sodium imanthethol, which is what is commonly thought of as true serum. So true serum apparently is not all it's cracked up to be. Hmm. And even if you do reveal something, it's likely to just be a little funny or off color, but not, you know, I murdered murdered somebody. And even if you do share a off color or something, the physicians keep it to themselves. They're, you know, they understand this is part of patient confidentiality. (laughs) Wow. Paula was given a very quick divorce from Dennis. Yes, an emergency is that and what they em- called it? Yes, it was. Uh, she cited emotional distress and was granted an emergency divorce. 
they waived the 60 day waiting period that's traditional for it for her. And so the day she went to court, they, the divorce was final. The divorce was final. It was done. And you know, what's interesting about that is when you're married, they can't compel you to testify against your spouse. No. And so I'm sure that was part of the reasoning behind granting her a quick divorce was that if she needed to testify against him, she was free to do so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's true. But I'm really glad for her that that was the case because yeah. who needs to, like, draw out that divorce? Well, and she's gone back to her maiden name, mm-hmm. like, immediately was back to her maiden name. And, I mean, that poor woman. Yes. So, there's been a number of books written about Dennis Rader, but there is an interesting one uh, by a lady named Mary Caps with uh, assistance writing by Jim Dobkins. She wrote, my boss was the BTK killer, and she believed that she was the focus of his next murder, that she was oh. going to be his 11th victim. He was He was developing a plan, which he called Project Broadwater. And she really believed that she was the focus of it. Oh, no. Yeah. How scary. And and this is probably the same woman who uh, complained about him repeatedly and was ignored. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Surprise. 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 All right. So next time... We're going to go back into the 90s. Well, we had planned to talk about another movie next time, but Jackie, unfortunately, was called out of town to be with an ailing relative. So she is unavailable for our next episode. So I, Christy, am going to be talking about the novel The Testaments by Margaret Atwood, which is the sequel, long-time sequel, of The Handmaid's Tale, which she wrote back in the 1980s. And this is such a great fictional novel that helps wrap up that story. It's so interesting and fascinating and I can't wait to see how that goes with the show and where that's going, how they differ, how they're the same, because Hulu has done a really great job of um, extending that story and giving us a little more information about what happened after the Handmaid's Tale novel left off. And the Testaments kind of uh, gives us a really interesting insight and into um, how things end up. It gives us a bit of a conclusion. So it's really a great novel, really interesting. And I am going to be talking all about that next time. So thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. We just want to thank you for listening to us. We know that you make a choice when you do that. We don't just come on the radio, that you make an active decision and we so appreciate it. We would love it if you would rate and review because that really does help us get found. If you can't give us a five-star review wherever you are listening, do send us an email to killerfriendpodcast at gmail.com and let us know why, because we do want to make the best show that we are capable of making. And we thank you. Tell a friend, because it's way more fun when you listen with a friend, If even if they're not family that you can get together with. You can both listen to it and have a telephone conversation or a Zoom coffee or, you know 
talk about, you know, who in your life Dennis Rader reminded you of. And <laughs> just be glad that just they're... Just don't tag them on Facebook. <laughs> and just be glad that they're probably not a serial killer. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and wash your hands. Yes, and we'll see you next time. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. Da, 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 da.